Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. This week, I am talking to the lovely Anna Mather, who is a psychotherapist. She's also a mum of two, and she's currently pregnant. You might know her better as Mama's Scrapbook. Anna has a huge following on Instagram where she shares what she calls psychoeducation. It's brilliant. She does these Instagram lives where she effectively answers your questions on Instagram about all things mental health. Anna suffered from postnatal depression with her second boy, and we talk about that a lot. We also talk about her own experiences with mental health, and like so many therapists and psychotherapists, that was Anna's drive for getting into the profession. There were many people, friends, family waiting on the sidelines but it's very hard to support someone who won't allow themselves to be vulnerable you know I think we've all got those people in our lives that we love a lot and we see them struggling and it's really hard to watch but you know that they're not open to your help so how can you help them we talk about low esteem perfectionism control her postnatal depression and how she's recovered from all those things and what she's doing differently today A lot of it was addressing that dialogue in my mind. A lot of it was starting to try and bring in a more compassionate alternative to the way that I was speaking to myself. It's one of the most relentless jobs I've ever had to do. So I think this is such an informative episode. Anna and I have a lot in common in terms of in our 20s, the challenging relationship that we had with ourselves and now coming into a much better place. So it was a great chat. Again, like so many of my guests, we could have chatted all day. But if you enjoyed it, please do leave a review or pop over on Instagram and tell Anna and I what you thought of the episode. And we'd love to hear your experience with this. You know, have you recovered from postnatal depression? Have you suffered from low esteem or perfectionism or control? And how do you handle that today? We would love to hear from you. So pop over to Instagram, motherkind underscore Zoe and join the conversation. One thing to note just before you listen to the episode is that the audio quality of the first section, just the first five minutes or so, isn't great. We started over Skype and you can hear it, but it is definitely not up to the usual mother kind standard and it isn't as clear as Anna or I would like it to be. But bear with it because after five minutes, it vastly improves and you can hear it beautifully and it's easy to listen to and I know you're going to love it so I am wincing too through those first five minutes wishing that the sound was different but these things happen as you know this podcast is just me I do not have a technical team helping me so I hope you will forgive me and I hope you can get over those first five minutes and really enjoy the rest of the podcast here it is so Anna, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. And this is your Sorry. first ever podcast. Yeah, I've never been on a podcast before. I've never done a podcast. You're definitely off my podcast, Cherry. I'm a little bit nervous. You don't need to be nervous. It's just like a live, but it's around forever. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you. So most people might know you as Mama's Scrapbook which you are known as on Instagram. So tell us a bit about who you are, why you've yeah. got an account called Mama Scrapbook. <laughs> so I'm Anna. I am a mum of two boys. I'm pregnant, about halfway through now, with a third. 
was definitely a, a heart overhead decision that one and I'm a psychotherapist so I've been a psychotherapist now for kind of going towards 10 years I started training back in 2004 that's been my career history really to the main the mama scrapbook thing's quite random I was moving house and I put Instagram on my phone really as a way to get some inspiration for how to decorate it it was a new build it was a bit of a white box so there's just a whole community on there of people decorating new build houses so I started this account and it was called new build interiors scrapbook and I was basically just putting up screenshots of lamps and copying other people's ideas and things like that. But after a while, the account started to grow. Stories came out. I'm pretty sure that's when stories came out. And I just really had a good laugh with stories. I really enjoyed it. And then I guess people start firing questions at you. They start to feel like they know a little bit more about you when they see you as a moving person rather than just lamp screenshots so I did an Instagram live because I moved into my new house and people wanted a bit of a tour I think I had about a few thousand followers so I did a live and I did a little house tour and then they were asking me other questions and they were saying what do you do for a job so I said I was a psychotherapist and that is kind of really how I started to bring in mental health content into my Instagram I lost the new build interiors bit just turned it into my scrapbook and yeah, just started introducing mental health concepts into my Instagram. And you call it psychoeducation? Yeah, psychoeducation. It's not even something I knew existed a year and a half ago. <laughs> but I've since found out that is what I'm very passionate about doing. And it's basically educating people on really kind of simple or powerful concepts that they can take and run with in their daily life and just giving them the tools to help themselves in a way and to facilitate that. And I found out that you could do this over Instagram Lives and Instagram Stories and a caption under a photo, and it just grew from there, really. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised it's grown because you do share your knowledge in such an accessible way, in such a practical way. How did you get to this career? Like, often people come to this because of their own difficulties. Was that your experience? Yeah, I think with most therapists it does seem to be so, especially when you get to know them, there is always a story. No matter how much or little you feel like you might know the therapist that you have, there's always a story behind why they are in that chair, in that position. For me, my mum is a counsellor. She trained at the same time as me, funnily enough. We trained at the same time, but she's always been of that kind of way of thinking. And as a child, she always helped me to articulate and understand some of the more complicated things that were going on in our lives with like family. And we lost my sister when she was nearly seven from a brain tumour. And my mum's approach just really helped guide me through navigating that grief as a young child. And then some of the side effects of that, along with other things, you know, that, that go on through life as we grow up. I don't know, I just think I had some really tricky emotions that I was holding on to. There was a lot of unjustified guilt and messy residual bits of grief that were still quite painful, a bit of a complicated relationship with my dad. And over the years, I just developed these coping mechanisms, you know, of just coping, keep calm, carry on, head down. You know, I got this covered and 
just a lot of kind of self-sabotaging behavior. I wasn't particularly kind to myself. I didn't like myself that much. There was a lot of self-destructive behavior going on as well. And all of those for me were manifestations of just low self-worth and low self-esteem. And then I was married and I had this man who really loved me. And I found that one of the ultimate challenges. Like it's very hard to allow yourself to be loved. I think I tried to break up with him so many times when he wanted to go out with me. I was just like, you're too lovely to want to be with someone like me. I just couldn't marry up his intention with what I saw of myself. But anyway, got married nonetheless. A few years later, had our first baby and that was kind of good. Like, I really enjoyed getting into the mummy life and the coffees and the, you know, the moaning about sleep and all of that. I think I was red flagged for a mental health midwife because I had a history of just some really low depressive periods. So I was kind of red flagged for that. Saw a lovely mental health midwife. Was like, you know what, I'm actually okay. So got signed off. Had another baby. Was pregnant by Oscar's first birthday. Wow. Yeah, Speedy, Speedy Gonzalez. And it was a completely different experience for me. Even my pregnancy was different. I had appendicitis when I was 12 weeks pregnant. Yeah. Didn't know that they could whip that out when you were pregnant. But... It was tricky and I was very sick and it was just a bit of a struggle, but it was all right. And then I had Charlie and I just had a completely different experience of motherhood with him. He had kind of severe silent reflux that went undiagnosed for six months. So sleep deprivation was and is torturous. Mm. You realise it is generally used as a form of torture. You can see why. I hit this excruciating depression where all of those things that had been bubbling under the surface that normally you can kind of just doggy paddle, you know, kind of keep on top on with your normal coping mechanisms. If you've had enough sleep. If you've had enough sleep. And then you take the sleep away and you had a constantly screaming baby. It's like a bubbling pot, isn't it? Just waiting to boil over. Yeah, and it did, and it boiled over. And I was actually terrified and I felt so humiliated because I was like, I am a therapist. I have the tools here. I should be able to sort myself out. So I tried and tried to sort myself out. I wouldn't accept any support of anyone. My friends were messaging my husband when he was at work saying that they were worried about me. What were they worried about? What were you presenting? Like quite a manic, yes. on top of everything front. Yes. Was like your house always perfect. Yeah, but right. I think the cracks were really quite obvious. They were becoming increasingly difficult to hide. And this is what I often say to people, and I refer to this moment, and I never forget it. I was walking along Godwing High Street in the sunshine. I think it was August. It was beautiful. I had this double buggy, and I was marching along, and I had these two under two, and from the outside, I looked like I was smashing it. I had big sunglasses on, probably was wearing lipstick, but underneath it all, I had swollen red eyes because I had just been crying. I think I'd called my husband that morning saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, Charlie hates me, I don't even think I like him either. It just felt really scary for me. But then I think they got to a point where I couldn't even pretend anymore. I just didn't have the resources, the energy. And that's when all of these things, the things that I learn and the things that I teach people and the things that I sit and talk with people on my sofa at home, I had to grab them and use them and realise quite how life-saving they are. Where did you start? It was my birthday. I remember it was my birthday. I sat in a coffee garden, Costa, absolute carnage, babies and toddlers all over the shop, mostly ours. 
And it was my birthday and my friends surprised me with flowers and presents and I just cried and I said, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I can't go on like this. Booked an emergency GP appointment, went to my GP. He asked me the normal questions that GPs do around kind of assessing postnatal depression. And I remember him saying, do you feel like it's affecting your connection with your baby? And I burst into tears and I said, I don't like him. He doesn't like me. I didn't say this. connection, yeah. There's not a connection. It was really hard. And he offered me some antidepressants. And I'm so pro those. But for me, at that point, I decided that I was going to do some things first before I took those. I was going to go home. I was going to talk to my husband. I was going to re-engage with some of my friends that I'd... You know those friends that always know you and kind of work out when you're not okay? Sometimes when you're feeling vulnerable... They're the ones that you kind of push away even because you don't want them to see through it. Mm. And I didn't want to be seen because I kind of feared that if someone saw how much I was struggling and got it out of me, I might never put myself together again. So I reconnected with those friends. I told them that I was really struggling. We lived in a really tiny Victorian cottage. The upstairs room didn't even have a door on it. So any sound, any crying travelled. Taryn, my husband, my lovely husband, I'd encouraged him to sleep upstairs he'd been sleeping upstairs for months I was in a room with the screaming baby Taryn would regularly come down in the middle of the night and ask if I was all right I would just tell him in no uncertain terms to go away because I found it very difficult him seeing me so vulnerable and I wouldn't even let him step in and help me with the baby I saw it as my job this is what I have to do I have to head down get on with it This always makes me feel a bit emotional because I think this is quite a big turning point for me. I remember this one night and I shouted up. I think it must have been, gosh, who knows what time, four o'clock in the morning. I was genuinely getting about 45 minutes sleep a night. Oh, my God. Yeah, on a very regular basis. I remember shouting up to him that he needed to come downstairs and it was because in that moment I had reached this point of sleep deprivation and utter kind of helplessness that I could understand why people would shake their babies. And it terrified me. It terrified me. And I realised that actually he is there upstairs, desperate to step in and support me. And I've just been kind of rebuffing his support, just as I had kind of everyone else's. And I think from then on, he came and stayed in our room and we did it together. And that was, for me, was one of the first steps in, I can't do this on my own. And I know we're not made to, but now I know that I can't. I've tried enough. And I think that was indicative of the changes that needed to happen. I needed to start accepting support. There were many people, friends, family waiting on the sidelines, but it's very hard to support someone who won't allow themselves to be vulnerable. You know, I think we've all got those people in our lives that we love a lot and we see them struggling and it's really hard to watch but you know that they're not open to your help so how can you help them and I had to get to that place for myself where I tried doing it on my own and it just wasn't working you know I kind of wanted to let everyone know that I had it covered but really I didn't. Mm. What was driving that did you have a belief around asking for help that was stopping you? Yeah And it's so contradictory to everything that I do in my job. I was always telling people, you're not made to do this alone. We need each other. We need to lean on people. We're a social species, aren't we? Yeah, well, absolutely. And I love the idea that in some cultures, you go and you see kids running around and everyone's looking after them and you wouldn't even be able to marry up whose child is whose because 
it's a collaborative effort. I don't know. I think it stems from like kind of childhood stuff, really. But just this very kind of stoic and quite fierce independence. And really, we need codependence, healthy codependence. You know, we need to be leaning on other people at times. We just can't exist as a single entity. It's like I was married, but really in my own head, when it came down to it, I would have been okay, just me, because I had the resources and I would be all right. You know, I always found it very difficult to let people into the vulnerable places. And that's what I had to do. And it was a steep learning curve, but it had to happen. And that is one of the things that I will forever be encouraging people to do. And I keep doing, you know, a lot of my openness. It's not comfortable. Like I'm sitting here kind of with tears in my eyes, just being open about that. But it inspires openness in other people. It makes it okay. You know, I will say some of the darkest things about myself in my Instagram. We'll talk about intrusive thoughts. I'll talk about shame. But my motivation for doing that is to call it out of other people so that it takes away that kind of... Well, we need someone to set that tone to give us permission to, yeah. you know, as everyone that listens to the podcast know, I go to a lot of Al-Anon 12-step meetings. Yeah. And I think that's the power in that. You know, you don't know these people. The whole thing's anonymous, but people are just taking their masks off. Yeah. And there's something incredibly powerful in that because by witnessing other people do that, yeah. I learn how to do it myself. Mm. And that's the service that you're providing through what you yeah. do particularly on Instagram, is taking your own mask off. Yeah. Because you're right, from the outside, you look like you've got it made. Yeah. So many times I have said to me, in response to something that I've written or said, I thought I was the only one that felt like that. And I can have confidence in speaking out my darkest times because I know with certainty now that I am not the only one to feel the way I do. Never. Never. Never, yeah. Yeah. Your deepest, darkest, most shameful experience or secret, you are, I can 100% guarantee, not the only one to feel or think like that. And that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, again, like another 12-stepism is our secrets keep us sick. Yeah. And that's 100% true. It's what we're hiding that keeps us, as you were, locked in those cycles of self-defeating behaviour. My experience is the same as when I could get honest and vulnerable. Mm. It felt like the world opened up to me. And it really does. Different world. And you can start to see that actually where you assume that there's going to be judgment and shock and repulsion from other people, confusion by other people, all those things that you assume that people will think or how they will respond. And when you speak to the right people and you experience compassion and kindness you start to have to dare to believe that you're worth receiving that. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I was not giving that to myself. And and most people where we kind of hold these things close to our chest and we don't let people in, it's because we're ashamed of it in some way. Or, well, shame can be such a powerful yeah. emotion that's very easy to believe. Yeah, definitely, and it keeps us stuck. So if someone's listening and they're feeling that way and they're nodding along to everything that you're saying, yeah. but they think, God... I don't have that husband like you did that might be able to step in or I haven't got those friends. What does someone do? Find someone. And I always say the quality is a kindness and compassion. If you see those qualities in people, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a doctor that you've spoken to before and you've always just felt that they've been warm, whether it's a budding relationship, but you know that they've got those qualities and there's something about them that makes you feel comfortable 
I would say choose two people in your life and it doesn't have to be anyone you're related to, but test it out, test them out, tell them a little something, see how they respond. Because, you know, often we don't have the confidence. Sometimes we are ready to say something, but we literally, the words won't come out. But hopefully there will be a couple of people in your life that will respond in a way that is affirming and encouraging you to say more. It's really hard when people don't understand because not everyone will understand. You know, there are things that I've been through in my life that my husband, as much as he tries to, he doesn't get it because he hasn't been there or he hasn't had that insight. And, you know, it is hard when you open up to someone and they don't get it or they don't respond in the way that you want to and then it can, it can put you off. Yeah, and yeah. that's what, you know, some of my coaching clients have heartbreaking stories of when they've tried to share mm. some of this stuff before yeah. and have been almost like reshamed or yeah. shut down. It's or... been abused or their vulnerability. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But like you say, trust those instincts on who the right person yeah. to... Yeah to talk to is you're right there's this kindness and compassion in people yeah and to test it out and don't feel like you have to say everything all at once you know just mm. just say a little something yeah like i'm finding this quite hard yeah. is enough see, isn't yeah, a, a conversation over yeah, there and see how they respond you know if they're like oh yeah of course we all find it hard sometimes you know yeah and that's it you think <laughs> okay right I'll try someone else. Yeah, and I remember, because I've been, you know, in this sort of sharing world for a long time, in my NCT group, sometimes I forget that I can do that. Some of my friends say to me, Zoe, like, sometimes you forget how emotionally articulate you can be and be in touch with your feelings yeah. what's going on. And I remember doing it in my NCT group and getting some blank faces, thinking, ah... Yeah. We're not going to do that here. And that's yeah. totally yeah. cool. And that's now we just chat yeah. about other stuff, like surface yeah. stuff. It's great. Yeah. You need that as well. But it's using that judgment, yeah. isn't it? And you need your two, at least two people. It doesn't need to be everyone. Not everyone in your life needs to know everything unless you have that kind of relationship with them. But just a couple of people need to know mm. how you are. So you started sharing. Yeah. And then... What was next? Did you go back into therapy yourself or did you start just employing the tools on yourself? So I just started really having to address my inner dialogue. Um, what so was it like? Tell us some things your critics oh, said to you. It was perfectionist. It was like, you should be coping better with this. Right. You shouldn't be feeling like this. Look how lucky you are. Look at your lovely children. Lots of shoulds. I always it's say shoulds. that's a big yeah, red flag. It, it is. It's a massive red flag. The standards, I was a perfectionist, like just perfectionist. And the standards that I held for myself were far higher than what I expected of anyone else and what people expected of me. And it was crippling, really, because I was never going to be enough for me. And that was really hard because I, I wasn't even chasing the approval of other people. It was just me. Mm. And I never really met it. So I had to change that. I had to change that bar. How did you do that? A lot of it was addressing that dialogue in my mind. A lot of it was starting to try and bring in a more compassionate alternative to the way that I was speaking to myself. It's one of the most relentless jobs I've ever had to do. You try and address what's going through your mind. You know, we bully ourselves constantly, some of us, and people-pleasing. Mm. You know, fear of what other people are thinking, fear of upsetting someone else, fear of being a burden on someone else. That's another massive one that keeps us quiet, is the fear of being a burden on someone. And I had to keep having these little conversations with myself and saying, but Anna, think about when your friend so-and-so opened up about how they felt about that. Did it feel like they were a burden on you? Well, no, I felt honoured. felt honoured, yeah. I felt honoured and I felt relieved that I could support them and it helped our relationship. It took our relationship deeper. 
So I had to keep kind of having these arguments. And that is what started breaking down the fabric of that. I like to use the metaphor of like a massive block of ice and imagine that you're standing there with like the tiniest little hammer and you're just tapping it and you're thinking this is doing absolutely nothing. This is relentless. It's boring. I'm never going to get through this block of ice. But what you don't realise is that with every little tap, you're changing the infrastructure in a way that you can't even see. So someday you're weakening that ice and one day it's just going to shatter. And it felt so relentless having to address what was going through my mind all the time. But that's been one of the biggest changes. It's really changes. important, important point. Because I think sometimes with the Instagram, and I put a lot of quotes on, and I know you do quotes, yeah. and I think sometimes it can come across as self-development and changing is easy and it's quick. And my clients talk to me a lot about this, and I yeah. say it's exhausting. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. it's the hardest job you'll ever have. Yeah. Because it's like you have to constantly be vigilant because you're trying to change the tide, aren't you? Of That tsunami of thoughts, you're trying to bring it back the other way. Yeah. It's physically exhausting. Massively. And I often think of like a tractor, you know, when it's ploughing a field, it's got those big, deep troughs where those wheels just easily slot in and it just rides down and backwards and forwards. And what you're asking this tractor to do is like you're asking it to start ploughing on the mounds and the wheels are just wanting to kind of slip back into the grooves. Lovely analogy. Yeah, it's so true. And it's slippy and you get it wrong and you forget. And But actually after time, with time and like brute perseverance, I'm not quiet about the fact that it's, it's bloody hard. It is hard, but it's the most worthy expenditure of my emotional and mental energy that I have ever made it's affected everything from the relationships that I form, from the way that I let people treat me, from the decisions that I make, from the way that I feel when my kids give me a cuddle. Like, I feel worthy of that. Mm. Like, it's changed everything. And after time, you know, that tractor, it forms new grooves. And that becomes the normal. Mm. And that is my normal now. I find that so hopeful, because wasn't it only, like, 30 years ago that we didn't know that about the brain. Yeah. The yeah. thought was by the you know therapists and psychologists that our brain was wired the way it was wired. Yeah. And I think it was, but I can't remember the study. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah. That showed that actually we have an elastic mind, oh, which yeah. means that we it's can... Hope. And there's hope. doesn't matter how traumatic your childhood's mm. been, how deeply ingrained your self-hate yeah. is, yeah. you can change. Yeah. To me, that's like the most hopeful thing that... Yeah anyone can ever hear and I know that with certainty whoever I speak to however hopeless the situation I can say to them it doesn't have to be this way for the rest of your life but you're gonna have to work you're gonna have to work yeah it's really interesting it's really interesting because it'd be good to get your view because a lot of the clients that I coach you know I talk a lot about feelings and needing to feel some of those frozen yeah feelings and a lot of people want to skip that bit of the work because it's horrible yeah. why would you want to do yeah. that but in my experience that's the most important yeah bit. did you have to do that did you have oh. lots of frozen feelings that came up when you started to change that dialogue so for me it was just self-hatred it was just low self-worth it just became very evident to me quite how little I thought of myself and quite how little I thought I was worth and this is what makes me teary because it makes me desperately sad now to think about that. It is desperately sad. To think I used to be really difficult to live with because I found it very hard to receive love and affection. It just Mm. confused me. I couldn't understand like you know in many ways it was kind of normal but 
in a marriage and, you know, he loved me and that's great and all. But on another level, it was innately kind of confusing for me because I thought, well, yeah, but then you clearly don't know me, do you? Because if you knew about me what I know about me, then you wouldn't feel that way. And sometimes I almost just wanted to prove it. I almost wanted him to hate me because that would feel more comfortable to me than being loved. Because it's what you knew. Yeah. And I don't feel like that anymore. And that's been that work from that relentless input that actually now it saddens me. That motivates a lot of what I do. It's the knowledge that so many people feel like that. They don't think they're worth acknowledging their value. You know, they don't think they're worth the good things in their life. There's always a yeah, but. Yeah, but if they really knew me. It's like a constant imposter in your own life, not even in your workplace. It's like living with an enemy inside. Yeah. That was my experience of it. Yeah. Pushing me to work harder. Yeah. All of it. All of what you're saying, I really relate to. And it's never, never going to be enough. And I think a lot of people, you know, you stay on that way of thinking because you're like, yeah, but if I just did this, if I was just this, if I got this job, if I, then I'll get there and I will be worth. Well, I call it the the when, the when, then game. Yeah. Which is when I get that job, then I'll be happy. When I lose that weight, then I'll love myself. And of course, it's a total fallacy. Yeah. But many people, and this is where my motivation comes from and my deep sadness because I see many people living their lives that way yeah playing the when then game it's fueled by culture though yeah, it's course, counter-cultural yeah. you know we talk a lot about self-care and it's like that's amazing but it's counter-cultural culture doesn't really accommodate for that no, it's well, kind of our, our capitalist it, but, society is yeah. set up on us not loving ourselves enough so we need bigger houses bigger cars better holidays all of that yeah. stuff you know that's yeah how we've been even our English ways our humor is self-deprecating we're constantly apologizing for stuff all the time so what stands on our toe and we say sorry yeah I remember Oscar brushing past me when he was about three and he said sorry mummy no no sorry I brushed past him I essentially like swiped him he apologized to me I thought no no you are gonna learn from me which means I have to start putting into practice that you did nothing wrong right then it was me own your space yeah yeah Yeah. and now I say thank you instead of sorry and that was again another really conscious thing where I had to kind of it was exhausting watching what I was saying you know Mm. saying yes watching what you say inside and outside isn't it just I used to say just just to say just is like an apologetic word without saying I'm sorry and I was saying it all over the show yeah but that's what we do that's one of our English ways we're constantly apologizing for ourselves it's kind of trying to preempt attack so we're like trying to disarm attack. Like you can't tell me off because I've already apologised. Like we make ourselves quite small yeah. and we don't need to do that. And it's actually really liberating and so empowering when you stop. To take up the appropriate space yeah. that each of us deserves. Yeah, and I do it with Jessie a bit. The whole like she's holding a toy and a kid will walk over and I don't make her give it. I'm yeah. like, that's your toy. If you want to give that toy... You know, let's have a conversation about that. But because I see so much of what you're talking about, of actually, especially women, not being able to inhabit and embody the full space that we deserve, like owning our power. Mm. It's like, why Mm. we're giving it away? Yeah. Because obviously it's what we feel we deserve inside. Well, that's it. That's it. You know, we think, well, it's just language. It's just language. You know, it's just our ways. But actually we are reaffirming it. Language is incredibly powerful. The whole sticks and stones will break my bones. Words will never hurt me. Words are often the things that hurt us. And we're often hurting ourselves with the words that we're using without even realising it. 
Because by saying sorry, when someone bumps into you, you're saying, I'm sorry for taking up that space. I'm sorry that I am a physical person in this space at this time. We think, well, it's just semantics, but it's not. It's not semantics at all. I'm totally with you. Words are so powerful. And the words that we say to our children. Yeah. I'm like so conscious of what I say to Jessie and how I say it. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone's listening and they're furiously nodding along, Mm. we've sort of heard your story and weaved in all this amazing advice of opening up and watching your inner critic and changing your dialogue with yourself, ultimately to get to self-worth and self-love. What are some of the other tools that you would want to share with people listening? So a big one for me at the moment is I always feel a bit like people are going to eye roll when I mention self-care because I think I might have eye rolled. It's just a projection of what I yeah, I was going to say. Feel like. Yeah, if you I, spot it, you've got it. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. But I like to reframe it because self-care for me over these last kind of couple of years has had to become about self-preservation. I've had to change the way that I see self-care as being something that is about, you know, massages and manicures and like gym membership to drinking water when you're thirsty, for going for a wee when you're desperate, to eating something that isn't going to just send you on a sugar crash that is going to dip your emotions as well as your energy. Saying, yes, I'd like something to eat when you go to someone's house instead of no, because you don't want to put them out, to taking five minutes in the utility room to scream instead of shouting at my kids, you know, acknowledging my emotion, asking myself, what is it that I need that I'm not listening to? Am I okay? Do I feel all right? You know, we're so attentive to the needs of our children, the needs of those around us. And that's all well and good. But looking after yourself isn't self-indulgence. It's keeping yourself okay for everyone else. And since I've started changing that, I remember last Christmas, Taryn took me to the local David Lloyd, which I'd always thought was something ridiculously extravagant that I would never do. And he said, for the love of God, Anna, I'm signing you up. And he did. And I he found sounds it, like such know, a lovely he husband. Is. I know. Can you see why I found it really challenging yes. to have him? Yes. <laughs> and um, he signed me up. I'd never put the kids in a creche to do something for myself. I'd never done that. I felt so bad. But I've gotten used to that now. It's bloody brilliant. <laughs> It's just the things like that, the me listening to my own needs and acting on them, the doing 10 minutes of yoga when before I would have thought 10 minutes is a waste of time. If I can't do an hour, what's the point? Mm. You know, break it down. Five minutes. It's a big belief to break down, isn't it? Just five minutes of something, having a bath, you know, taking a book instead of my phone. Mm. The little things that actually, we think it's all kind of egocentric. It's about me, me, me. But my family benefit from me doing these things. We're the linchpin. Mothers are often the linchpin. Not always, but often. And when we're not okay, things tend to not be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was hard for my husband because I was always feeling a bit resentful. He got this time at work. He could wee when he wanted to. You know, he had that time on the train to do his thing, whether it was watch something or scroll through emails. And I just always had this resentment and I was just always overdone. Mm. Resentments, I always say, are a really good red flag as well. Yeah. If you're feeling resentful... There's something going on, yeah. isn't there, normally? Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't have the same arguments anymore because I'm not so highly strung that I'm ready to snap should he look at me in the wrong way. <laughs> and it, it's nicer. It's nicer for the kids, you know? I'm, because that's what, as humans, we yeah. need. We need to look after our mind, body, soul, don't yeah. we? And if we're not, it comes out sideways. Yeah. 
in really unexpected ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the boundaries, like the barriers to people starting to attend their own needs is, but I am not worth doing these things. Well, okay, look at your family. If you think they're worth it, you need to do it because you living out of like this empty scrape in the bottom of the barrel place, it's not good for anyone. No, You need no. to do it for them if your motivation can't be you for a while. And but I, then it changes and then it does. Yeah, I always say that. And yeah. You say that as well. Like I say act as if and you say that actions change the thoughts. Yeah. And it's the same idea yeah. that don't wait until you feel like you love yourself enough to yeah. give yourself a half an hour nap this afternoon. It won't, it won't happen. It will never happen. No. Just do it anyway. Act as if, yeah. act as if you loved yourself. Yeah. That's what I always say to my clients. What would you do if you loved yourself and do that thing? Yeah, and what would you want people to do that you loved? And yeah. Do that. Yeah. Another good one is, which is a Kristen Neff self-compassion one, which is, what would you tell your best friend in the same situation? Because yeah. most people can access that really I know, quickly. Much when I say that, they say, compassion. oh, I'd tell her to have a nap. I'm yeah. like, okay. So you're going to tell that to yourself. Yeah. It's easier to access that compassion when we think about other people. But now, with all of this and all of the things that we've chatted about, it comes in time. So then you can access it for yourself because you're like, well, I'm worth it. I'm, I love Is that myself. where you're at today? Yeah, and I generally, yes. When I am not, I know that I need to address something. And often that comes in line with hormonal tiredness or, mm. you know, when the resources are low and... That's often the first thing for me. Sick. When you're yeah, pregnant, I'm pregnant. pregnant. I've been really sick. Start. Yeah, you've been really sick. That's a bit of a red flag for me. When I start cutting back on, I'm drunk enough water. And sometimes it is just little tiny things. They're acts of care. If we're not doing them, what is it? It's sabotage. Mm. And what, what are you telling yourself well, exactly. about yourself that you're not worthy of water? Well, and sometimes right. that is what I've told myself and sometimes that is what I've truly believed. Mm. Funnily enough, shockingly so. But yes, all these things do shift that sense of worth and that is where everything changes. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.